gosh, one of my favorite things to talk about is forgiveness and grace and being reminded that, my friends, we are set free this morning because the work of Jesus on the cross. And so um, that's why we come here. That's why we do what we do every week. And so thank you so much for joining us in worship. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. My name is Sue Ann. I have the pleasure of serving on staff here at Christ Church and being part of this amazing teaching and preaching team um, that we have here. And so it's my joy to just spend a few minutes together in God's word with all of you this morning. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our sermon series that we have been on for the last several weeks. If you have been hanging around, you know that we have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed. And we have been uh, calling this sermon series Credo, and it's Latin for this, I believe. And so this morning, we're going to dig into the third of the last line of this, the creed. I don't know if that's grammatically correct to say it that way, uh, but we're getting to the end. And we're going to talk this morning about, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And you know, as I was preparing for our time together this morning, sometimes as preachers, when we are digging into a passage and a message, God has this way, maybe some of you, when you, you get into your Bible study, like God has this way of just starting to mess with us a little bit and bringing stuff up in our soul. And I, I kind of had this epiphany this week as I was getting ready to preach this message. This morning, or not this morning, but uh, in my house, actually, we are a split gender family. So we're 50-50 down the middle. We have two girls and two boys. Uh, my husband, Eric, and I have been married for 20-something years, and uh, we have two children who are teenagers, Sadie and Clay. And it's interesting because my kids are so different, and the boys and the girls in our house are so different. Some of you may experience this exact same thing, because um, when Sadie gets just a moment or a breath in her day, she is on the phone, she is FaceTiming me, and she's just like walking through, right? Play by play of everything, not only everything that's happened throughout the day, but every thought, every emotion, every like feeling she's had, she is, she is spilling it out to me. And, and I gotta say, I'm not much different, so she and I, we just connect this way, and we, we are kind of the verbal ones in the family. And then there's Clay and Eric, and I confess I'm gonna generalize and stereotype a little bit here, but I would say the boys in the family are a little bit more nonverbal. And so it's shocking to me because they don't actually want to tell me every last detail and every emotion that they have experienced throughout the day. In fact, Eric and I, early on in our marriage, um, he would come home from a long day of work, and I would say, hey, you know, honey, how was your day? And he would say, fine. And I would say, oh, okay, well, tell me about that. And he would say, well, I just did, right? Like, what more do you want me to say? And so I have worked hard over the years of kind of pulling the, t the information out from the boys. And, and one of the things that I've learned that's been a really helpful tool is we ask this question a lot in my household, well, on a scale of one to 10. It's like when you go to the doctor and they're like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how bad does it hurt? And so I asked that question a lot in my family, on a scale of one to 10, how fine was your day? <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, how, how bad is that conflict that you're having with this certain friend? Or how easy was that test? Or how mad at me, Eric, are you gonna be on a scale of one to 10 when I tell you this thing that I'm about to tell you? And the reason I love that tool and the reason it works so well for our family that I've learned over the years is, is it helps me to understand where they are at. And I think it also helps them to articulate what it is they believe 
about where they are and their current reality as they know it on a scale of one to 10. And so here's the epiphany I had with God this week. Whoops, sorry about that. As I was thinking through this, as I do this with my faith. I do this with the Apostles' Creed as we've gone through it. On a scale of one to 10, how much do I believe this thing that we are actually declaring and saying together that we believe? On a scale of one to 10, how much do I believe that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth? It's actually a pretty easy one for me, scale of one to 10, 10. Do I actually believe on a scale of one to 10 that Jesus Christ is, our only begot- is God's only begotten son, our Lord, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered, crucified, was dead and buried, and was rose again on the third day? Do I actually believe that? Actually, on a scale of one to 10, 10. I believe it, that's why I'm a follower of Christ. On a scale of one to 10, this one gets a little bit harder. I believe in the Holy Church. I had to wrestle with that one a little bit because the church is messy and it's flawed and it's full of broken people and it's been a rough year for the church. But you know what, at the end of the day, I actually believe on a scale of one to 10, 10 out of 10, that the local church is God's A plan for his story of hope and redemption in this world. I believe that. On a scale of one to 10, do I believe in the communion of saints? That's a super easy one because I have men and women who have surrounded me and been in my life who have encouraged me and prayed for me and challenged me and journeyed alongside me over decades to transform me more into the image of Christ. Absolutely, 10. And then I get to this piece that we're talking about today. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And my gut reaction, the first thing out of my mouth, wants to be 10, of course. If I believe everything else that I just said I believe, when I get to the forgiveness of sins, I actually don't have a choice but to say 10 out of 10, this I believe. And yet God showed me this week because I had like a catch in my spirit. I actually had like this unsettling in my soul because I quickly began to realize that when I lay my head down at the pillow, at night and the darkness of my own thoughts, that sometimes it's easier to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead than it is to believe that in God and his mercy and his grace that he removes my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That if I just confess my sins that he is faithful and just and that he will purify me of all my unrighteousness, that if I believe in Christ, if I just say that I do, that, that he will actually take the old away and he will make me a new creation whiter than snow. On a scale of one to 10, that gets a little bit harder. And then it gets a little bit harder still because what I realize, if I actually believe those things, if I believe they are true of me, then I have to believe they are true of you. Oh, person right now who is in my mind that God has just put here that is a giant pain in my rump. Right, that person that God is bringing to your mind right now that has caused you nothing but pain and devastation and hurt, maybe in a moment or maybe over the series of your life who has not earned and does not deserve your forgiveness on a scale of one to 10. What do I think about that? 
on a scale of one to 10, do I actually believe that not only was Jesus serious when he said, forgive others as I have forgiven you, but that he actually gives us the supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to do something that we are incapable of doing on our own, that he gives us the power to actually step towards that person that has hurt us and lavish them with grace when they don't deserve it. On a scale of one to 10, friends, what do we believe about the forgiveness of sins? Maybe you can relate to what C.S. Lewis famously said, that everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea, everyone says it's a 10 out of 10, until when? Until they actually have something to forgive or maybe even receive God's forgiveness for themselves in their own life, it gets just a little bit harder, my scale goes down just a little bit. And so this morning, we're gonna spend the next couple of minutes in a text that I would imagine most of us don't associate with forgiveness. We jump to the New Testament, and we talk about all the stories of Jesus, which are amazing, but in the spirit of this ancient creed, I actually wanna take us back, take us back to the Old Testament and go through the words of Psalm 130. And if you have your Bible with you today, if you have your Bible app on your phone, I would encourage you to pull that out. We're actually going to spend a little bit of time in this walking through it, so it would be good to have it open. But of course, the words will always be on the screen to help you out if you don't have either of those things. Now, Psalm 130, before we start reading it, actually has a really interesting history. So Martin Luther was actually so captivated by Psalm 130 that he called it a proper doctor and master of scripture, and he went on to write a hymn about it that would endure through the centuries. It was said to be John Calvin's favorite psalm. Augustine had it written on his bedchamber, on his deathbed when he was sick and dying. He had it inscribed in his room so that he could read the words to be reminded of the hope that was to come. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he was in a really bad place in his life and he walked into a church service and he heard the words of this song sung and history tells us that his heart was strangely warmed. You ever had that happen? Just like, you can't quite explain it, but it was strangely warmed and he had a conversion experience over this psalm. It has a really rich history, but even if you didn't know that history, I think if we step back and we take a look at the words, the reason this song, this psalm resonates is pretty simple. It's because it expresses this deep and universal truth of the condition in our human hearts, the thing that is true about each and every person as we sit or we listen today, and that is this, that we are sinners. We are sinners, my friends, and we are desperately in need of God's grace. And so let's hear the word of the Lord this morning as we read the text of Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. For if you, Lord, if you kept a record of my sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, we can serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. I want you to remember this phrase because we're going to come back to it. You're going to walk out of here singing it today. In his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. 
Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the Lord, with the Lord, is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this, this psalm, not only does it have a rich history with people who have encountered it, it actually has a rich history in and of itself. It was um, one of 15 psalms in the book of Psalms no, known as a song of ascent. It was this collection of psalms that, the, um, that were believed to be sung by the Israelite community. So the Jewish pilgrims, as they would make their way up to Jerusalem, we see in the scripture, people are always going up to Jerusalem because that's the only way that you could go. And so they go up to Jerusalem and they go to celebrate the religious festivals of the day, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, these different markers in their history as the people of God that continually remind them who they are and what their story was is the people of God. Some scholars actually believe that Jesus himself may have sung this song as part of their tradition on his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast where he would later be crucified. It was a way that Israel would remind themselves that they were once slaves in Egypt, but God, but God in his goodness and his grace and his mercy, he saw their pain and he heard their cries and he rescued them from the darkness of their past and he set them free into a future filled with hope and light and redemption. They sang this song as a reminder not only of what it was they believed, but who it was they believed in. And so when they start singing, we see they are really honest about where they're at on the journey. We can learn something just right here. They're really honest on a scale of one to 10. They're like a negative 20. Has anyone ever been in this place? Yeah, they're there. They're there. And so we see in this place, they start out and they say, out of the depths, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord, Lord, hear my voice. This metaphor, out of the depths, that's used throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in the Psalms. And it's, it's this metaphor that conjures up this image of the sea. And it's just watery chaos. It's watery chaos and it's meant to conjure up this image of one who is drowning in deep water. Now, if you've ever been submerged in water, even just for a few minutes when you didn't want to be, think of when you were a kid in a swimming pool and someone dunked your head down under the water and you have that moment where you just panic because it feels dark and you're disoriented and you just, you're desperate and you can't breathe. It's this, this state of confusion. And the thing I love about this psalm is the Israelites right here, they know, they know that it's impossible impossible for them to get out of the depths on their own. They know that there is only one that they can cry out to who can rescue them and save them. And so what do they do? They cry out to him. They cry out to the Lord. And you'll notice here that Lord is in all caps. 
Anytime you see that in scripture, you know that's the Hebrew name Yahweh for God. It was this I am who I am, this great I am. They couldn't even have an English word for it. And it reminds us that Yahweh eventually will become Yeshua that became Joshua, that became Jesus, that became Hosanna in the highest, the one who saves And you see in just these two little verses, this is why I love scripture so much, just these two little verses, two pretty amazing things happen. And the first one is this, the people of God acknowledge what is true about themselves. Friends, this was about more than just mere circumstances. This was about more than just they said something they shouldn't have said, and they didn't get a chance to say they're sorry, or they, uh, they cheated on that test a little bit, and they knew that they shouldn't have, or maybe they broke a promise with a friend. It's more than about just regret. Friends, this was about their fundamental ontological orientation before God. Their position as human beings who were sinners, Sinners who had no hope of rescue, they would actually sink to the bottom of the ocean to their death unless the divine intervention of God swooped in and saved them otherwise. Are you getting this picture? And so what do they do in humility? They cry out to the Lord. They actually cry out and they choose to believe in spite of their circumstances, in spite of the chaos, in spite of how dark the world feels around them. They choose to believe in a God, Yahweh, who saves and who hears their cries and who cares about these cries of their heart. And he sees them while they're they're drowning And he doesn't respond with with, um, resentment or bitterness or shame or with anger or rejection. He responds how? He responds with mercy. He responds with grace. They acknowledge what is true about themselves and then they acknowledge what is true about God. If you, Lord Yahweh, if you kept a record of my sins, Lord, who could stand? If you kept a record, a list of everything I've ever done in my life that was wrong, Lord, how could I not be guilty before you? How could I possibly stand for there is not one righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I had such a clear picture of this um, several years ago. I have been actually sitting on this story for about eight years, just waiting for like the exact moment (laughs) to tell this story. But here's what I need you to do. I'm gonna confess something to you, but I know, I know I'm not alone in this room. And so when I confess something to you and I ask you if it's happened to you too, I need you to just be honest. Don't don't leave me standing up here alone feeling foolish, okay? So I'm gonna see your hands. You two at home, I'm gonna see your hands. So um, here we go. How many of you have ever had a red light camera ticket? Oh, you're making me feel so good. I love this. I wanna see my daughter better be raising her hand over here too, because I've seen that one. When I told Eric I was gonna tell this story, I said, I'm gonna tell the story about the red light camera ticket. And he goes, which which one are you gonna tell? (laughs) I said, all right, fair enough. So, So one day I get in the mail, I get this letter, that I know immediately what it is. I I know it's the red light camera infraction. And so I open it up and and, you know, they have that link where you can go to the website and you can see, you can watch yourself, uh, see how bad the infraction was. 
And so I'm like, well, how bad could it be? And so I do it, I go on the website, I look, and I watch myself, and come on, you guys know how this goes. Like, I mean, it's barely, it's like, you know, I, it's not like I blew through it. I get there, I pause, I'm, you know, and I, I, I guess it was a California roll, I don't know. And so I watch it and I say, you know what, there is no way, you've gotta be kidding. There is no way I'm going down for this. And so I say, you know what, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fight this, I'm gonna show up at court. And so I think to myself, like, no one shows up to, to fight a red light camera ticket. And I thought, they're going to be so proud of me that I am such a good citizen that I show up just by showing up. They're going to they're gonna send me home. They're going to let me off, right? And so I show up, and the place is packed, <laughs> okay? It's just packed with people. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's interesting because I walk in, and the place I went, it kind of looked like an old church. And so uh, the, you have the audience like you guys are sitting in now, and that's where I was sitting. And in the front of the room, you have the judge, and you have a couple court reporters, and then there's two huge flat screen TVs. And what they do is in front of everybody in the whole room, they play your, your video on the screen. And so you can see, and they play it once, and they play it twice, and then they ask you to enter your plea. And so I was there for like over an hour, and so I'm making friends with like everyone around me, and you know, we're kind of starting to take bets, like, you know, oh, they're gonna let this person off, that person, they're definitely not making it. And what I realized all of a sudden is the whole time I am sitting there, I am judging my infraction and my subsequent punishment based on how bad I think everybody else did on a scale of one to 10. And by the time it's my time to go and to stand before the judge, I am convinced that I am getting off and I have this whole defense planned. I have a whole host of reasons about how I was having a bad day and I was distracted and I'm actually a really pretty good person just in case the judge doesn't agree with my assessment. And so they call my name and I go and I, I stand before the judge and he plays my video once and he plays my video twice and he asks me one question. He says, ma'am, did you or did you not come to a complete stop? And every defense that I had, that I had planned to tell the judge faded away before me because I knew there was only one answer to his questions and friends, I had to say it to him because I broke the law. And I said, no, sir, I did not come to a complete stop. And it would make for a but much better sermon illustration if I told you that day that he just extended grace and let me off anyway, but he didn't. He didn't, I, I was declared guilty and I paid my fine and had to go home and explain myself to my husband. There was no rescue for me that day. But friends, that's not the story of our God. It's not the story of the Gospels, it's not the story of this Psalm. The good news of the Gospel is that God doesn't leave us drowning in the water. He doesn't leave us drowning in our sin. He doesn't leave us drowning in our circumstances. He doesn't leave us drowning in our guilt or our shame. He gives us light. He gives us hope. He gives us grace. And we see here in the scripture, in the psalm, one of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, but 
But with you, God, there is forgiveness. The entire New Testament is a story of Jesus entering the dark places with his people where they feel like they have no light and no hope and no chance of redemption or restoration. And he does exactly what they thought he could never do. He rescues this world from itself. And so friends, if this is what we say we believe, what do we do? What do we do? The psalmist here says, we wait for the Lord. With our whole being, our whole soul, our whole heart, everything that we have, we wait for the Lord and in his word, in his word that we declare, that we believe together, friends, we put our hope and we wait for the Lord. We wait, we wait more than watchmen, wait for the morning and he repeats it to just make sure we know that they're waiting more than watchmen for the morning. This image the psalmist gives us that's taken from the book of Isaiah, it's this image of a sentry sitting on a city wall or a soldier sitting and, and t making watch at a camp during war at night. He's watching in the darkness and they're waiting for those dangerous threats that will come when they lay their head down on the pillow and the enemy will question what it is you believe and inevitably want to rob you from the truth. They wait with hope. They put their hope in what they believe to be true and they wait for the safety and the deliverance that was guaranteed, guaranteed to come with the morning light because the sun always came up. And when they started to doubt and when the lies started to creep in and they wondered if forgiveness and redemption and restoration would ever come, some of you have had this experience. You've laid your head on the pillow at night and you're sitting here saying, Samantha, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. Or maybe you're saying, but Samantha, you don't know what they have done. You don't know what he has done, she has done. You don't understand the injury that they have caused me. You don't understand the brokenness of my marriage or my family or of this friendship. You don't understand how wide the gulf is between me and them or between me and God or between God and them or between all of us. So man, you don't understand. And you know what? I don't. I don't understand your exact situation. But this, the psalmist reminds us, friends, that's why we're here today, there is one who does. There is one who rescues his people from the depths of the water and he hears their cries in the darkness and he lavishes them with mercy and with grace. And so Israel, the psalm says, Israel, this isn't just about an individual and God, it's about the whole community of faith, it's about the church together, link arms and put your hope in the Lord. Why? Because with the Lord is unfailing love. This love, this beautiful word that's used throughout the Hebrew scripture, hesed, that we use. We don't quite understand it, but it is God's steadfast love, this love that never gives up, this love that goes the distance no matter how dark 
the darkness. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were dead before we knew him. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and he seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in the kindness and the forgiveness and the outstretched hand of Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not something you can do yourself. It's just a gift of God. It's the gift of God so no one can boast. Friends, on a scale of one to 10, do you believe this today? You can, you should. It's rock solid, it's true. And so I thought what we would do to close this service as we move into this next piece is we're actually going to put ourselves in the place of those first Jewish pilgrims of the Israelite community, because friends, we are the people of God. It is our story too, and we are gonna sing our song of ascent. We're gonna sing Psalm 130. You can put it on your Spotify playlist when you go home today. You can listen to it all day. We're gonna wait for the Lord. As we sing this song, as the team leads us, I would just invite you to turn this song, this is your moment, turn it back into a prayer to God. Because maybe today for the first time, you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Maybe that's all it is for you today. You need to acknowledge that you stand before a judge and that he declares you guilty, that you are about to drown. But even considering that, you're choosing to believe in the forgiveness of God that was found in Jesus on the cross, that there is one who saves today, my friends. Maybe you need to pray that prayer to God during this song. Maybe for the first time, or maybe you just have this thing that has been just eating away at you, this thing that you haven't told anybody, you haven't confessed to anybody because you're afraid. You're afraid of the shame, you're afraid of the consequence, you're afraid of what might happen. And so you just keep holding it in. Or maybe you've told someone or confessed it, but you just can't let it go. You can't get to a place where you believe that God has removed that sin from your life and you just need to remind yourself right now. You need to make it right between you and God or you need to make it right between you and that other person. And you need to just trust that the morning light is gonna come. You need to receive the grace that God has so lavishly extended on you. Or maybe you need to extend that forgiveness to someone else. This is a hard one. <laughs> maybe you've been carrying that weight and that pain of what someone else has done to you and you're struggling to let it go and you want to and you know you should, but you just can't get there. Let today be the day. <laughs> maybe just take one step in that direction just one step and allow God to carry the burden that you have been carrying that is not yours to carry. Let yourself be set free. 
And maybe in doing that, what sometimes we forget is there is someone else on the receiving end of that, the person who's caused you pain and they need set free too. Friends, God, he can do all of it. Wherever you're at today, wherever you find yourself on a scale of one to 10, just give it to God during this song. Put your hope in the one who rescues and the one that calls us to believe, to stand firm on his character. Friends, and if you're in a place where you just need to wait, you just need to cry out as you're waiting for that morning light, do it. This is your time.